Well, that's where we're at in the story of Esther. We come to chapter 2, and I want to do what I've been doing, what I did last week, and I'll do again this week, and that's I'm going to read these verses and make some comments on it and hopefully um, add some color to the story and some background to the story that you may not see when you're just reading it on your own. And so let's begin with Esther 2. Um, but first, before we do, <clears throat> it's important to just do a quick review because some of you may have not been here last week or you may to be refreshed in your memory. The book of Esther is an account of a time when the Israelites are living far away from God. They're in another land. They have been um, deported to another place. Due to their disobedience, they were, were, were taken away five, uh, some 900 miles away. And, and the ruling power at this point, Babylon, around 586 years before Christ, actually comes and takes that whole group of uh, Jews and deports them into different cities throughout the empire. And, And the practice of Babylon was to remove the brightest and the best from the land and put them in their own major cities and put them in positions and raise them up so they could be in positions of influence. It, it was kind of a, what I would call a brain drain of the countries that they were actually conquering. And part of that would allow for them not to take only the best and the brightest and put them in places, but it would also take them out of those other countries, which would really remove more of the possibility of there being some kind of backlash or some kind of revolt that would occur in those outlying countries. Well, that was Babylon. They they reigned from about 605 years before Christ to about 539 when a new country rose to power called Persia. They were the Persian and Medians, and they were a a large power. And in that time, at 539, they came in and they defeated Babylon. If you remember Daniel's handwriting on the wall when he's in Babylon, and and that's around the time when the Persians came in, and Cyrus the Great defeats Babylon. They have a different policy. They come in, and they decide, instead of all these people who have been deported, put in these nice positions, they began to let people go back to their homelands, to their countries. They let the brightest and best, whoever wanted to go, to go back. And the purpose of that was that they'd go back to their capital, and because of the generosity and the niceness, they were hoping as they would build up their capital cities and build up their temples, that both the people and the gods of that land would be to their favor. And in that process, as they went back to these different lands, those places would become strongholds for the whole empire, which was from that time all the way from India to northern Africa, hoping to begin to spread into places like Greece and maybe possibly even to this kind of backcountry area called Italy, Rome. Okay? So that's kind of the picture. That's kind of what's going on. During that time, they let about 50,000 Jews with a guy named Zerubbabel go back to Jerusalem and begin to build the temple. They got the foundation started when a persecution began to arise around them in Jerusalem, but it's considered possibly throughout all the lands. All throughout the Persian Empire, there may have been a persecution that was taking place with those in Jerusalem. So they never finished anything. So for 60 years, that temple just laid in that ground and in, in that city laid kind of just with foundations built. And then about 60 years later, they brought a guy named Nehemiah and Ezra, who were again taking a group of people 60 years later to come back and to finish the work of building both the city, the gates, and the temple itself. And that was the purpose. And in that 60-year period between the first wave of 50,000 with Zerubbabel and the then next guy, Nehemiah and Ezra, in that time of t- period of 60 years, the story of Esther takes place. And these are with people who, who didn't go back on the first wave. 
And they're asking themselves, as persecution begins to build, they're asking themselves because they have this belief that maybe God doesn't rule over the whole world. Maybe there are other gods who are ruling over them. And because they have read their Bible stories, and and they had seen the kind of miracles of, of Moses crossing the Red Sea, they had heard stories as they had read them of Joshua who prayed and the sun stood still. They had been aware of the fact that this little guy, David, stood up against his big, huge, giant named Goliath and with just some stones killed him. They had read miracles upon miracles of, of, of these prophets of Elijah and Elisha. And they're saying, God, where are you? Why aren't you coming and acting in that way again for us? And they look for miraculous displays of God's power to come and to bail them out or to help them. And they couldn't help but wonder, where are you, God? And it may be the question you're asking yourself. Or maybe someone that you are um, in your family or at work, they're just kind of asking themselves, in this crazy mess of the world that we live in, where are you, God? Maybe in the crazy, chaotic mess of your own life you're saying that, or someone who you love is experiencing the same. And you've prayed, and you pleaded, and you cried, and you're saying, God, where are you? That's the story of Esther, and that story of Esther is for you. It's really for that person whom you're praying for and you love. And you see this God who is nowhere mentioned, as we said last week, nowhere is the name God or or God mentioned in this story. But as you read through it, and as we read through it, you'll find that he is everywhere active, not with in-your-face supernatural miracles, but with the -the behind-the-scenes kind of work that, um, that only a person can sometimes see after the fact. You ever have that in your life? You're in the midst of it. You can't see God at work. You're wondering where God is, and you go through it, and you, and you do the best you can. You make mistakes. You actually come to the end, and at some point at the end, you start going, wow. You start connecting the dots, and you see, wow, look how God worked in my life. That's the story of Esther. It's this idea that you may be in this place right now, and you, and you can't even connect the dots. You have no idea what's going on, and as you're going through it, you're, you're kind of just going, God, I'm just going to trust. I'm just going to push into you. You know that times in the wilderness, times in those lands, that's the idea. In the wilderness, when you're deported, when you're in a place where you're kind of going, God, where are you? I can't see you. What, what's going on? It's so interesting. If you read through the Bible, God allows for those wilderness times where he takes away all our support systems. For the purpose sometimes of just drawing our hearts to be supported by him and him alone. I have to tell you, I think it's in those times when our faith is probably the purest. And you may not think it is. Because you have all these questions, you have all these doubts, you're awesome, you even find yourself angry at times, you find all this stuff. I think there are those times when God kind of pulls us into these wilderness places where we're in the desert and we're trying to figure out what's going on. We feel the temptation, we feel the attack, we feel all this kind of stuff. We're asking for God to come in and step in and to do something and we don't see his hand at work. And in those times he says, trust me, trust me, trust me. There is a time to exercise the muscle of faith in those times and experiences that create greater pure faith so that that when you move into those other times, you are a stronger person within your character in relationship to God.
Okay, so let's get into Esther chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. It says in verse 1, Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, Let a search be made for the beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai. He had kind of a neat name. Hey, guy, come on over here. Anyway, um, he's the king's eunuch who's in charge of the women. And let beauty treatments be given to them. And then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And this advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. And so you see in this first verse later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, the, the, the idea is, is literally after this, and it refers to the events that happened in chapter 1. And so chapter 1, just a quick review of that, King Xerxes had held a 180-day pep rally. He had brought together all the uh, military and political leaders of all the nations in his kingdom from India to northern Africa. He wanted to sell them on one idea. It was a huge pep rally to say, hey, look it, I would like to attack Greece. I want to avenge my father's loss over there to the, to, to the city of Athens and the people of Athens who came and they attacked us and they beat us. So I want to go. I want to extend the kingdom. I want to avenge what he's done. And he gets them all together. He holds this big 180-day pep rally. They all go away. And it must have been good because we're told that immediately after that, he has a seven-day banquet for the city of Susa. I said like last week, it would be as if we do this huge Super Bowl thing and then after it's all done, the Twin Cities and all the representatives go, wow, that was really good. You as people of Minneapolis and, and St. Paul did an incredibly good job. We're going to give you something. Well, they, he gives them a seven-day party. And we're told a couple of things about Xerxes. Xerxes is historically, not just from this Esther, we're told in, in history um, by people like Herodotus and others that he had a bad temper. He always got his way kind of thing. And the other thing is he liked to drink. And so at the seven-day party, he's what we called wasted. He requests his wife, the queen, and he wants her to show off her beauty. She's holding her own party. So that's not really the sensitive husband kind of thing to do. Because the queen wasn't to show her face to anyone. Let her own display her beauty in that way. So she refuses. And there's a bit of humor in this whole thing. As you go through, there's these places of humor that we don't see, but they see, especially in their culture. Because here's the king who was able to get an entire realm to do what he wanted them to do, to go to war, but he can't get his wife to do what he wants. So she refuses. And then his wise, though really foolish, advisors, who probably don't like Queen Vashti. She was a woman of some considerable power, it's said historically. And, and, and so... These, rather what they call wise in the passage of Scripture here, but really foolish, decide to tell him, let's depose the queen, get rid of the queen, lose, you know, lose the queen. And he goes, that's a good idea in his state of being wasted. And so what you find is that soon after that took place, the king Xerxes goes off to war. 
And what's interesting, Herodotus and others say that all the officials, because they would be a two, three, four-year um, venture, would take their family almost with them. But it's told that, Herod- that um, Xerxes didn't bring his. So there's a sense that we know something happened to Vashti, even from external sources. And so we read after this, and it's the idea that after returning from the defeat, because he goes to Greece, he comes and he's sitting on the seashore, he's watching, he brings one to two million people with him, armies, people he's drafted from all the realm. They come with him, and they have 1,200 military ships against 400 little vessels. The Greeks are actually in the sea, and he's watching them as these little vessels destroy and decimate his fleet. And eventually he comes home, it says, with 5,000, leaving about 250,000 to try and hold the land, which they can't, according to history. He comes home, and he's not a happy camper. We're actually told by Herodotus that he had a couple of affairs, and they tell this in, in some other extant history. And so it says that between chapter 1 and chapter 2, you have this Greek war take place. He's coming back. He's not feeling really good. His fury has finally subsided. And he says he remembered Vashti. And the idea of remembering here isn't so much that he remembered all that who she was. It's the idea that he remembers with affection. He becomes sentimental and he goes, man, I miss her. Now, what do you think those wise, rather foolish advisors are thinking? If he misses her a lot and reinstates her, he'll basically, he'll end up... Um, getting us relocated, basically, our head from our body. Because she's not going to like us. And so these same guys who depose the queen, who are fearful, begin to start thinking, hey, I've got an idea, king. Let's find a new queen for you. You can't, you know, the law of the media. Persians and the Medians, you, you can't change those laws once you make it, which they could have probably done a new law that could have had a loophole, but they convince him because this is a great idea. And so they, they, they basically put together, let's have a Miss Universe pageant. And they appoint commissioners in every province in the realm to bring these beautiful women to the harem. And it says, search was made for them. And this is not some kind of volunteer program, Okay. The word take means taken by force here. And so the search was, was made to them. This, this, is, this is not like some kind of, if anybody's you know, familiar with this bachelor show, there was not kind of like King Xerxes is looking for bachelorettes around the country. To, you know, it's, it was not some kind of, you know, here it's come to your city, apply. They went out and they searched and they went after him and took him by force. And, and part of the reason this might have been appealing to the king is not just his own, his own lusts, but it, it, it could have easily have been, too, that in that time when all the eligible bastards, so many of them had been put to death, you had to do something with all the women all around the country. And so he brings them all to his own little harem because he has the means to take care of them and then also to find a wife. So if you continue in chapter 5, in verse 5, now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem from Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Right now you have one of the central characters being introduced into this. In typical of a Jewish fashion, they give you a little bit of the person's pedigree. Here's his, here's his genealogy. First we're told he's a Jew. 
What's interesting is it was in that time when the word Jew became somewhat more popular. It actually started back then because they came from Judah, so they called them Jews, and that name has stuck. And then we're told that they came from the tribe of Benjamin, which is the tribe that King Saul came from, the very first of the royal tribe. And of the apostle Paul, who was named Saul before, becomes Paul. All of them come from Benjamin. Benjamin was one of the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, that were very loyal to the kingdom in Jerusalem. And we're told that the father was Jared's father, was grandfather was Shimei, and the great-grandfather was Kish. And they also were taken by force. Same word used here to come to, uh, into exile, into Jerusalem. Verse 7, Mordecai, a cousin named Hadassah, had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother had died. Now we come to chapter 2, verse 7, and finally the main character of this whole story is revealed. Esther, the orphan, adopted by Mordecai, her much older cousin, and she had no father or mother, so he becomes her guardian. And there's a sense, as you see this whole story, about God's guardianship over his people, over us as his people, It's interesting, here is an orphan who is taken and cared for by Mordecai, which there's this kind of subtle message in it that God is to all of us. We are, in a sense, adopted into his family, and he has become our guardian. And so you see this picture as you can see these little nuances through it. The Hebrew name Hadassah means myrtle, it's fragrance. And the Persian name is Esther, which means star, star, the east in that sense. And when a person was in captivity, they would often have two names. This wasn't because they were lacking religious conviction at all. It's just that when you lived in another country, Daniel had a name, and he also had a Babylonian name. It's kind of what we do sometimes for the Chinese students. This is a real kind of obvious thing we do here. We often have a different name for a Chinese student. They have a, an American name and their Chinese name. You know why? Because we can't pronounce it. So you kind of adopt a name that everyone can recognize and talk about, and that's often what they would do even in those cultures. And so here she's given this Babylonian name, or this Persian name. And we're told Esther was really good looking. She was beautiful. And depending on the translation, again, you're reading, it might say she was hot, she was a 10, she was easy on the eyes, these are all the different translations, she was foxy. There's actually one extant version, the 77 Commodore Targum, that says she's a brick house. <laughs> you got to be into research to know this stuff. Just kidding. Um, verse 8. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. Now, again, I want you to notice it's the king's order and edict. You know, you're in a place where you have two really not good choices. And again, in this, um, my guess is she's just praying, God, help me understand. What is it you want me to do? Mordecai says, I think you need to go. Verse 9, she pleased him. This is Haggai. And won his favor. Immediately he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. And he assigned her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place 
in the harem. Now, the story's kind of interesting here. Either she's really lucky or some kind of coincidence is taking place or somehow God's guiding things, even through a man named Haggai who takes a look and goes, I like her out of all these beautiful women. And, and the word immediately, he provided her with beauty treatment, special food. It's, it's the idea that right from the beginning, he saw her and showed her favor. And, and he assigned her, according to the seven female attendants selected from the king's palace, moved her and her attendants into the best place in the realm, in the, in, 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 into that palace, into the harem. Now, I want you to note this. This is something you may not c- kind of connect with. But especially in Persian times, numbers were really important. And and even in the biblical um, records, there's numbers that are important that kind of signify things. And so uh, she's given seven female attendants, not five or not eight, but seven. And if you read chapter 1, you may not be picking this up because here's kind of the hiddenness of God, the hiddenness of even this, this, this writer who's noting these things that happened. If you read chapter, chapter 1, it says there were seven days of feasting, there were seven eunuchs, there were seven advisors, and now there's seven maidens. And this isn't some kind of mistake that's happening. In fact, if you go through here, Mordecai is mentioned 58 times in this passage in through Esther. Do you know that there are seven times only that he's called Mordecai the Jew? Again, there's this sense of this number seven, which is the idea of completeness, perfection. There's a sense that behind it all, God is caring for. And these numbers are, again, kind of hidden little allusions to the fact that behind the scenes, even in this, God is caring for his people. And there's, a, there's another thing that you'll see that, that underlies all that's going on here. This is a common, this story is a story of a people who were disobedient, who, who go into another land. They're deported into another land. And in this land, you're wondering, are they going to be okay? Are they going to make it back? God has a purpose for them. Is this purpose actually going to ever happen in their life? You ever wondered that in your own life? Is it going to happen? Is God, it doesn't look like the things are going the way they should. There was a guy named Joseph who was sent into Egypt, and eventually his whole family went there, and their family was put there, and eventually they came under captivity, and so much so they grew in such a size that they began to wonder the Pharaoh and others, and, and they began to actually persecute them, and the persecution came to such a degree because they were afraid that he would overtake the kingdom. They had become so large. And would they become assimilated or would they be persecuted to the point they would no longer exist? And the purposes of God would never be completed. But God, in his grace, raises up Joseph, who, who rises to a position of power. And he leads the people, all of them eventually. And years later, the, the whole people are led through Moses into another and back into the purposes of God to the land of Israel. And you have in this story, all throughout it, underlying it, the story of Joseph and the people who are in Egypt. And it's intentional. Being in a foreign land, Joseph, in Potiphar's house, in prison, and everywhere he went, what happened? He had what? Favor upon him. There's this parallel story underneath the story. Because God had a work for him to do, even though it was hard to see the hand of God, even in Joseph's own life. And the promise again and again throughout the Bible is this. If we seek to serve God, to follow him, even when the options don't look good, God is there behind the scenes blessing. He's at work. So verse 10, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background. 
because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so, and every day he walked back and forth in the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Again, there's just more hiddenness in this book. Part of what makes this book such a great story is there's so many layers. God hides. Esther now hides who she is. Later we see a hidden plot to kill the king in this chapter. And eventually you'll see that things are recorded, but again, it's hidden, forgotten in the mind of the king. All this hiddenness. And Mordecai instructs Esther to hide the fact she's a Jew. And you don't know why. Why does he hide? What's, what's the deal? There isn't an answer given in Scripture, but it's more than likely that the growing resentment and bitterness towards the Jews in Susa was growing as they were growing in, in size and also in strength within their government. And there's no good option. I, I'm, I'm reminded of... Um, of Ecclesiastes at one point where um, in, in that song, um, some of you remember the song the Turtles did years ago, Turn, 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 where they basically take it from King Solomon. They stole it from King Solomon, just so you know that. King Solomon, the Ecclesiastics, did this years before that. It, to everything, turn, 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 there is a season, turn, 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 and to a time for every purpose under heaven. And one of the things it says is a time to be silent and a time to speak. I'm wondering if in her heart, as she was thinking, is, is, in Mordecai, is this a time that we're to be silent? Well, so before her, in verse 12, before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had a complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months of oil and myrrh, and six with perfume and cosmetics. Talk about a spa treatment. How many guys have done that for your wives lately? I mean, come on, a year. One year of getting beautiful. But you have to understand there's a number of reasons for this, okay? It's not just because he wanted her to smell really good and, and look good. First, beauty then was a bit different than it is today. These women, many of them were country girls or farmer daughters. Nothing against them at all. But they probably worked out in the field and they, they probably, um, you know, they were beautiful. But the problem was they were really tan and thin. You're kind of going, so what's wrong with that? See, in that culture in that day, that was not a good thing. That showed that you were blue-collar, you were probably a worker in the fields. That's not a good thing. They really wanted them to be fair and a little, you know, plus size. They were really hoping. That's not what the king would really find as beautiful. So they had to take some time to make them beautiful according to the standards of their day. Secondly, there was a lot to learn. If you haven't grown up royalty, I mean, how do you use perfumes and lotions and rollers and flattening irons and all kinds of things that they had to learn? They had all these kind of things of beautification they had to do. They had to go to cotillion classes. They had to learn manners. They had to learn how they were to to actually um, treat the different royalty because they were representing royalty. You don't want the person doing something really stupid, so you had to take them to all these classes. They had to learn how to be royal. They had to learn dances and ballroom dances and this kind of thing, and it took a year. And so we read in verse 13, and this is how we, she would go to the king. Anything she wanted, this is any of them coming, anything she wanted was given to her to take her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there, and in the morning, return to another part of the harem to the care of Shashgas, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. 
So now, kind of, here's the big moment: meeting the king. And and what you have is not just a beauty pageant. You have um, what's going on. Not only she has to make a really good first impression. She's not trying to just get the first impression row. She also is trying to get in that first row as a final row so she can actually be a part of the fantasy suite. And she has to be a part of this whole, I'm going to please the king. And as you read it, there's a lot of disgust. In fact, there's some disgust behind the author because he's kind of showing this very self-centered king. His king who thinks of nothing else but himself, who takes the most beautiful women in the country into his harem, sleeps with them one by one, and if not pleased with them, well, too bad for her and her family. She's actually assigned to another house in the harem, placed under the care of this guy Shashkaz. She's unable to return to her family, and she must remain unmarried. In fact, many ways the word could be like a widow. Unless somehow the king was pleased and called her by name. And what the author is kind of showing, here's this king who thinks he's really in control, has all kinds of power, and and you look at him and he is the height of selfishness. And he's, he's, he's giving this amazing contrast of this guy who could care nothing about anything but himself compared to the God of the universe who is so in love with you that he cares for every detail and his hand is at work in your life even though you don't see it his selflessness in comparison is being completely contrasted and so you're wondering right what's going to happen to Esther so verse 15 when the turn came for Esther the young woman Mordecai had adopted the daughter of his uncle Abihail to go to the king She asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested, and Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. So not only is she incredibly beautiful, but she's wise and humble. The other women took whatever they want, and it's told in history probably what they did is they take all kinds of jewels they got themselves, because anything they took with them, they probably got to keep. That was one way of at least, if I'm not going to be chosen, I've got all this wealth that I can take with me. But Esther turns to Haggai and says, Haggai, you know the king, you know what he likes, you know what's best. I'm going to trust for you to tell me what to do, and she does. And you see this continual humility that she has. Mordecai, she listens to Mordecai. She listens to Haggai. I think it's a sense that she's listening as best she can to God. And her humility, her, her modesty and humility impresses the king. Not all the things of the world, but an inner spirit. And we're told not only she impressed the king, but we're told that she won favor with everyone who saw her. So verse 16, she was taken to the king Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month of the, se- of, of the month of Tebeth in, catch this again, the seventh year of his reign. Verse 17, now the king was attracted to Esther to more than any of the other women and she won his favor and approval 
more than any of the other virgins. And so he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. And he proclaimed a holiday through the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. Basically, he loves banquets. He loves drinking. He loves even when he's in a happy mood to give holidays, which in, in the actual Hebrew language is the idea that he actually maybe remitted some taxes. And he gave him some days off. He had lost, basically, a whole group of people in his kingdom out of selfishness. But now he's really happy because he has a queen. And so you come to verse 19. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her, um, secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do so. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. This whole idea of virgins being assembled a second time, many scholars don't know what fully that means. It may be, most likely, what happened is the second time he gathered together all these virgins because now that Esther had been chosen, they were still bringing some in from the country, still going through these royal, you know, beauty treatments. Some were still there, and he maybe, in his goodness and generosity, let the rest of them go whom he hadn't had come before him. What we're told, though, is that Mordecai sat at the king's gate. And this is no small position. This is not like some homeless guy sitting at an intersection trying to get some money from some people. This is a very important position. To be at the king's gate meant that you occupied actually an official position. Men who sat at the king's gate were usually judges or elder representatives. And, and, and people, respected citizens, would come and they would bring their issues before men. These respected individuals who sat at the gate would actually help them judge and make decisions about disputes. And so you, you see here that he's sitting at the king's gate. Now, I just want to mention something about this because this, there are scholars who will look at this, especially liberal scholars who um, I- academically will look at this book and say, well, this isn't really a historical book. It's just, a, it, it's kind of like Shakespeare. It's a nice poetry, nice story. And, and, and there was a number, there's a lot of that in the early 1900s into the mid-1900s. And, and, and they're saying, ah, this is not true until not long ago in an archaeological dig. They discovered the name Marduka, which is the word for Mordecai in that language. They found it on a cuneiform form tablet in Borsippa. And this name Mordecai is identified as a high official in the royal court at Susa during the early years of Xerxes' reign. They said two things. They said, one, the guy couldn't rise up that quickly in the kingdom. And secondly, you wouldn't put a foreign power guy like that in that position. We don't have his name. It's probably not true. And as one scholar writes, the discovery is clear that it was possible for a foreigner like Mordecai to rise to power into Xerxes. And the inscriptional evidence offers remarkable archaeological confirmation of the biblical narrative as being true. We just sometimes don't have all the information. Fictional stories are nice. They're helpful. They're encouraging. But actual testimonies are real events of God working in someone's life is inspiring. Because you can look at that and go, God can do that, and he is doing that for you. So we come to the very end here. During the time of Mordecai, he was sitting at the king's gate. Bikthana and Teresh, two officials of the, uh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry, conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. And, but Mordecai found out 
about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles, and all this was recorded in the book of Annals in the presence of the king. Just two things. Mordecai happens to be at the right spot at the right time. Coincidence or providence? And the guards are, are, are literally, they're guards of the door who protected the way into the king's private chambers. We're told they're angry. We don't know why. They're hiding again their intent to kill. You see the hiddenness all over. Now again, note the parallel to the story of Joseph. Two officials of Pharaoh are thrown into jail. They plot to kill the Pharaoh. Joseph tells their dreams. Joseph, um, the guy says, you know, I'll remember you. Joseph waits two full years feeling forgotten. Where are you, God? And as the story ends, he's told, we're told that it's written. This is been investigated, they found out it was true, and they actually wrote this down in what they call the King's Journal of Important Events, and they write it down, but at this point, as you'll see as you read on, the king forgets. It's hidden from his memory. But God doesn't. God never, ever forgets anything you do in faith. He will never, ever Overlook anything you have done in his name. So here's, here's just a conclusion. I just, here's one of the things that, that I just want to share with you in conclusion, and that is that there's a number of commentators that was going through this. They, they, they look at the story of Esther and Mordecai, and, it, and this is, there's quite a few who, who they focus in on the fact that she sinned. She hid her faith. She didn't follow Jewish dietary law. She married a pagan king, and they argue that Mordecai and Esther put themselves into this position. They should have returned with the first Jews into Jerusalem in that first wave, and they assumed Mordecai and Esther didn't leave because they were trapped by wealth and by the lifestyle of their day. That's why God's silent, they say. This is all the reason for the stress in their life. And I, I read that, and, I, and I, as I read through this and you go through this, I'm almost appalled. They're so quick to judge. How do we know why Mordecai and Esther were in Susa? I mean, there's all kinds of possibilities. Their parents could have been ill when the first wave left. Esther may not have been born. She had no choice in it. God could have even spoken to their hearts and said, I don't want you to leave yet. I have something I'm going to have you do here. And I just thought to myself, how careful we have to be about our judgment when you don't know the entire story. It's often so easy to look at other people's decisions and judge them thinking we know clearly what is right and what is wrong and if if we were in their shoes we would have known what was right to do and it's so easy to talk about ethical and moral issues in the abstract because any theoretical situation we can define the choices real clearly for ourselves. Choices aren't always that clear. One commentator, I like what he says, life is not that neat and tidy. The story of Esther offers us great encouragement and comfort when we find ourselves in situations where every choice is an odd mix of right and wrong. Only God knows the end of our story from the beginning, and we are simply responsible for living faithfully in obedience to his word and our conscience as we look to the Holy Spirit's guidance in every situation we face. And even if we make the wrong decision, whether through an innocent blunder or deliberate disobedience, our God is gracious and so powerful that he's able to use the weakest link in the chain of events so that his perfect will is accomplished in and through us. 
And I just look at my own life and I go, you know, I, I can't tell you the choices I've made. I can't even discern my own motives. I don't know if any of us could. But I just want to encourage us. One of the things that's so incredible, that when I say, look at the story, I just look at all the favor of God around Esther and around Mordecai, and yet I also realize they're human beings who probably in fearful situations make choices that maybe are even sinful. And yet they continue to pursue after God. And God is still working in their life. It doesn't make excuses for what we do. But what it does is elevates a God who is so great and so powerful, so forgiving. So I just want to share with you, if you're not living perfectly, none of us are, right? Only Jesus did. And that's why we come to this uh, meal. We come to this meal recognizing the fact there was only one who was perfect. And in his perfect life, each and every one of us is given grace and forgiveness. We all are sinners. But when we come to God, there's this amazing work of God, of this incredible director of the scenes of our life, behind our life. He can take all the things in our life and begin to, re- to move them into places where he will accomplish his purpose and his will. And that gives me hope. I'm going to ask if the team who's going to be serving would come forward. I'm going to ask if um, you have, in faith, opened your heart to Christ and, and invited him into your life. And you want to feed on his grace and his goodness, his mercy. And you want to you follow him with your whole heart. I invite you to be a part of this meal. But before we do that, I'm going to ask you just to bow your head in a moment of silence and just come before the Lord and examine your heart. If you know you are deliberately in sin against him, now is a time to just say, God, I repent. I, I want to align my life with you. If you know that you're living in a way that's displeasing, the best way he can guide you into his purposes is to humble obedience. If you're living and you're thinking, man, I blew it, I just, I don't think God can use me, Yes, he can. This is what this story is about. God can take your life and begin to align it and fulfill his will through it. And if you're coming and you're just filled with joy because you know the gracious, loving hand of God, I just encourage you to celebrate this meal. This is a meal of celebration of God's goodness as evidence to his son, Jesus Christ who gave his life for you. You see our hearts, God, you hear our prayers. And in Jesus' name we say thank you. Amen.